Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this edition of the Lone Star Podcast. This is Pastor Trey Graham in Texas, joined by my good friend, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel. Hello, my friend. How are things in the Holy Land? Thank God. Things are good in the Holy Land. Uh, we are in the week of... To be Shvat, which celebrates the reflourishing that the trees that grow in the land of Israel and uh, a great time to be living uh, in, in a time that the Talmud says that the reflourishing of the land of Israel is the greatest sign of, of redemption and uh, where it's, it's wonderful to be here and celebrating God's blessings. We will be there. We're bringing a group in April to the Holy Land. If people want to find out about our next trips to the land, either in April or November, they can go to my website, which is TreyGraham.com, or they can call our office, 972-838-2277, to visit the land of Israel with me, and you'll get to see my friend Rabbi Lippman while we're there. And Rabbi, we promise our listeners every week here on the podcast a look at some important news items and then a discussion about the Torah portion, the weekly discussion from the Bible. So so there's a troubling but also interesting discussion going on in Poland right now. We all know what happened in the 1930s and 40s leading up to the World War II and the Holocaust, but something specifically is happening in the politics of the country of Poland right now. Fill in the listeners, please. So many people may not realize, but uh, there has been a process of Poland exploring legislation to criminalize anyone who accuses uh, the Polish nation or the state of any kind of complicity in the, in the Holocaust. And sure enough, that legislation passes on, on Wednesday night of this week. And this is something which is, which is deeply disappointing, I would say, from the people uh, of Israel. We're not looking for a, a, a fight with the Polish government. Uh, we, we certainly uh, have good relations uh, with Israel. But a, a, a denial of any part of Poland played in the Holocaust against the Jews, is just, and, and, and to punish people uh, with prison time for going to Poland and, and speaking about it to groups, uh, that's something which we, we condemn. We, we feel that that there's a way that we can work together to try to find the right terminology. And, and certainly we as a people don't say we blame all Poles for what happened, but we have to remember what took place during the Holocaust in Poland. Uh, just to give you a little bit of the history, there were 3.3 million Jews living in Poland in 1939. 3.3 million Jews. It was the largest population of Jews in the world at the time. And just fast forward a few years to the end of World War II, and at that point, there were 380,000 remaining alive, from 3.3 million to 380,000. Yes, it was the Nazis that came in and invaded. Yes, it was the Nazis that came in and set up the concentration and extermination camps in Poland. But there was certainly a complicity uh, among 
amongst people uh, within the Polish establishment, alongside righteous Gentiles in the bunks of Poles who saved Jews. And, and we very much recognize that. When you come on the trip and people come to Israel, you go to Yad Vashem, which is our Holocaust memorial, and there is a very clear area called Righteous Among the Nations, uh, where we focus on the Polish and other uh, non-Jews throughout Europe who help Jews. So we give credit to those. But it's very important not to rewrite history and to make it a criminal act for someone to simply tell a historical fact, uh, which is that there was some Polish assistance uh, or a significant Polish assistance uh, along the way. And therefore, it's sad, Pastor, to see people revising history. It's sad to people not to stand up and say, we're responsible for something. That, that's part of, of being an upstanding person is to stand up and say, we, we did something uh, or our ancestors did something. We wish they hadn't done so. And we're working to uh, repair that and those relationships. And that's the beauty of the time that we live in today, that, that we're able to repair a lot of those relationships as a Jewish people and, and a state of Israel. Our conversation that we're having right now is a repairing of things and a, and a history between Jews and Christians, uh, which hasn't been uh, so positive throughout the ages. And therefore, Israel condemns it, and it's pretty much across the board in Israel that we feel that. And we certainly hope that we can find a way to reconcile it and to, to, to fix it. I want to ask you from a political perspective, since you're a former member of Israel's parliament, but also from a personal perspective, and I'll ask them in order, politically, how does this work? You sit around the parliament of Poland and you decide, someone says, we don't want to talk about this anymore. We don't want anybody to say that we were complicit with evil, so we're going to make it a crime to say so, to use the words like Polish death camp. How does that work politically and legislatively? Some member of the Polish parliament uh, at a certain point, I don't know the precise history, uh, certainly came up uh, with an idea. Maybe they were tired of hearing anyone blaming Polish people or the Republic of Poland uh, for, for what, what happened. And uh, that's the terminology they use in the, in, the, in the bill, the Polish nation, the Republic of Poland. And started, you know, you go around lawmaker by lawmaker and you explain them the law and I'm Sure, it goes through some kind of a process where they decide, okay, what's the punishment going to be? They came up with the punishment of either a fine or imprisonment for up to three years. And then it has to go in Poland to go through, first uh, they, have, they have a house and, and the Senate, and uh, the word uh, has to be confirmed by Poland's president uh, before it actually becomes law. And now we have another parliament, the parliament in Israel, which is working to try to counter uh, the Polish bill. So I can give you the, the Israeli side. Uh, there are some Israeli lawmakers who are trying to make a law that it provides legal, pro legal protection to Israelis who are incriminated by Poland over any statements which they make about the Holocaust. Uh, the other one wants to, you know, Israel has a uh, law about Holocaust denial, again, trying to protect history's story and not revise it, and some legislation about uh, expanding it to minimizing the role of collaborators to the Nazi regime, including any Poles. Uh, uh, it, it's just important that history be accurate. And uh, we, we, we don't try to blur any, any historical truths. Let there be freedom of expression about the issue. There can be open debate about the issue. But, you know, we, we shouldn't call them, uh, we agree, by the way, we shouldn't call them Polish death camps. They weren't Polish death camps. They were German death camps in Poland. And we are also very careful about the terminologies uh, that are used. But I'll tell you this, Pastor, you speak to people in Poland, 
up here, Polish Jews, who went through that and who survived it, and they will tell you how so many of their neighbors turned on them and were complicit together with the German regime. And to think that that can be a criminal offense today, to, to tell that story, uh, that's something which we have to uh, fight against. And, you know, we are Jews and Christians. We, we, we stand for truth. And uh, it's critical that everybody be aware of this. I actually heard, Pastor, that there might be some strains between Poland and the United States over this. And that's a good thing to hear, that the United States uh, will be standing side by side with Israel. That's a continuation of the strengthening of that relationship and, and the securing of that relationship. And hopefully all people who stand for truth will reject uh, this kind of legislation. And my last question on this topic before we talk about the weekly Torah portion, it is human tendency to be ashamed of the past, whether it's our personal sinful actions of the past or those of our ancestors. But instead of dealing with it openly and honestly and repentance, we try to pretend it doesn't happen and we make sure we ignore it. The cliche is you sweep it under the rug. And that's true in every area of abuse and crime. Have a tendency to not be honest about it, but let's just pretend it didn't happen. We're seeing that natural human tendency going on right now on a national political level in Poland. Exactly right. And, and, and it's hard. It's hard to confront uh, those things that have been done uh, in the past. And I, and, I, and I understand that. But I think um, the ideal and leadership would be to stand up and say, we need to make sure that nothing like this happens ever again. We need to make sure that we educate our children about this. We do live in a world where Iran is still spreading the word of Holocaust denial. Uh, you still have the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, who his thesis was that it was a Zionist conspiracy in the Holocaust. We have all these uh, crazy statements and, and suggestions being made. So education of truth is important. And even if that means that people have to confront the fact that their ancestors perhaps uh, were not living up to the highest of ideals and were complicit in some horrible things, uh, that's a worthwhile thing to confront in order to pass on truth to the next generation. If there's one thing that uh, you know, we, we, both of our faiths share, it's a commitment to, to truth and to the importance of, of truth. And that's something which uh, we're demanding in this situation. We do believe in truth because we believe God is true and his word is true and he calls his people to be truthful. And one of the blessings we have every week on this podcast as the rabbi and the pastor is to discuss the word of God together. And so I'd like us to transition to this week's Torah portion, the parashah, which Jews and Christians have studied as the weekly reading of the Bible for Jews over 2,000 years. And this week's Torah portion, the Hebrew title is Yitro. It's the name of Jethro, as we say it in English, Moses' father-in-law. The passage comes from Exodus chapters 18, 19, and 20. And there's a lot of information we can cover here. And Rabbi, I'm going to ask you a few questions to get some teaching from you. The first thing that I notice in chapter 18 of Exodus, this is obviously after the people of Israel have left their slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses and his brother Aaron. And now Moses is reunited with his father-in-law, the Midianite priest named Jethro. And Moses has a huge leadership responsibility. There are potentially 2 million or 3 million Israelites who are wandering through the desert and they have disputes and interpersonal conflicts and they all bring their issues to Moses and he can't handle all of the stress. He can't deal with all of the issues just simply from a time perspective. So his father-in-law Jethro creates for him a leadership model and a lot of people call it the Jethro principle. 
And that's basically you set up a chain of command or a hierarchy that Moses, you're responsible for the most important disputes and conflicts and discussions and the lower level or the lesser issues. Let people lower down the chain of command handle this. Now, I want you to comment on this, Rabbi, but I think I need to tell our listeners something. Your father in America was a federal judge, and I'm no lawyer or a judge, but I think this is how our legal system works, that you have the courts and the courts of appeals, and then you move your way all the way up to the Supreme Court. So I think even our American judicial system follows what we call the Jethro Principle. That's exactly right. Let's remember, and this is part of what the Judeo-Christian ethic brings to the world. Uh, the world at that time was, was, was largely pagan and, and uncivilized, and certainly if it was ruled, it was ruled by dictators and kings who just had complete control, and they were the ones that anybody had, was beholden to, whether it was, you could call it a court case or not, but the one who was deciding life and death, the one who was deciding prison or not. And Moses, for, from two perspectives, uh, was in this position of every single person uh, coming to him. One was he, he wanted to make sure that there was a unification of the people. He wanted to make sure that there was sort of a standard that was being set. This is a brand new nation, a brand new civilization emerging from slavery. And, and he wanted to make sure that it was set in the right way and therefore he could do that. But there was another part of it also, which was, and we see this later in the Bible also, the people wanted to uh, connect with Moses. He was their savior. Uh, he was the person who led them out of their bondage. And they wanted to have this personal connection, and they were willing to stand. I mean, it, it tells you in chapter 18, verse 13, from morning till night, uh, they would stand waiting in line for, for Moses. So Moses shows us his, his dedication to the people, but also, yes, Jethro sets up this system, which we now see throughout the world, a civilized world, where you have a system of courts, you have a system uh, even within a, a synagogue or a church, there's an approach where not everything falls into the lap of one person or one body, and it sort of works its way up to the chain till it gets to the Supreme Court or to the high priest or to the greatest rabbi. And that's what's established uh, over here. But what we learn very much, and it's focused in our synagogues and in our teachings, uh, we learn about Moses' dedication, his dedication to the people, and also the determination of the people to have some face time with him. If we then look at the next chapter, which is Exodus 19, I want to discuss a couple of verses, and that is the words of the Lord and then the words of the people. If we look at Exodus 19, verse 5, remember again for our listeners, this is after the deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They're on the way. They're on the journey to the promised land. And the Lord says, Exodus 19, verse 5, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that was the word that the Lord gave to Moses to give to the people. And so in verse 7, he does that. And here's the response of the people. This is Exodus 19:8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so what I'd like us to discuss is, first of all, the promise of covenant, the promise of relationship that the Lord makes. That's also a conditional statement. As we have said on the program and we say in our church all the time, blessing follows obedience. So there is a call to worship, a call to obedience, a call to Shema, to hear the Lord and obey the Lord. 
And so I want to talk about that, but then I want to talk about the people's reaction after that. So first, please comment on the way the Lord makes this offer of covenant relationship. We always talk about what's called in Hebrew the Brit, the covenant uh, which was made, uh, where God gives us an opportunity. He gives us an opportunity to be his kingdom of priests. We view that, and this is very important uh, to emphasize, Judaism uh, does not proselytize. We're not looking to make people Jewish. We're looking to bring God to the world, to bring spirituality to the world, to bring monotheism to the world. And that's our role as a kingdom of priests. And God gives us the opportunity to rise to the occasion and accept that responsibility. It's an honored responsibility, but it's a responsibility. And in order to maintain that status, we need to be steadfast, fulfilling God's commands. And therefore, the moment, the moment the Jewish people come together, and I want to emphasize one word, you referenced verse 8, where they have their response. It was, Vayanu kol ha'am yachdav, which means together. There was a unity here where they all said, we are going to do what God commands. Meaning they understood that this wasn't just a status which was granted them, but they understood God's words, that God said, I want you to be that kingdom of priests, but it's dependent on you fulfilling my commandments. And they accepted that. And the most amazing part of this, uh, which we can talk about further, is the very next verse is where God says that I will actually reveal myself to the people. It's no longer going to be through Moses, but an actual revelation, meaning there's that process exactly as, as you laid it out, Pastor, where God makes the offer. It is conditional. The people accept the responsibility and the commitment which they're required to keep to, to earn that responsibility, and then God says, wow, you've taken that step, now I actually reveal myself to you as a people. I do want to talk about verse 9 in a moment, about God's revelation of himself personally to people. But first of all, let's look at that verse 8, the response of the people. They said, as you say, together, a teamwork, a partnership, a family, if you will, quote, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Here's the problem. We all make promises to the Lord that we don't keep. We all make covenants to God that we break. The Lord never breaks covenants with us. We break promises to the Lord. So I'd like to talk for a moment about how do we stop doing that? How do we make our promises to the Lord to spend more time in prayer, to spend more time in the Word of God, to spend more time caring about other people, to be generous with our time, be generous with our money? How do we stop making promises to the Lord in a sense of emotion or energy at the time, and then we fall back and break those promises later. It's disappointing that we do that. How do we stop doing that? Because that's exactly what happened to the people of Israel. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's certainly a part of human nature, and the Bible certainly makes the accommodation for that, and that's why there's the repentance process. The only thing that we can do, and, and I think that our faiths will agree about this, is to continuously, on a daily basis, find sources of inspiration. If we just rely on some memory of, yeah, I was in church on Sunday, I was in synagogue on Sabbath, and hopefully that will get me through the week, it's not going to work, uh, because you see that people have this moment of inspiration, the moment of revelation, and it quickly subsides, as we'll talk about in future weeks as we see the people of Israel very quickly fall to sin. So the, the, the lesson is to, on a daily, daily basis, have inspiration that helps you stay 
true to the path that you've accepted. It's still not going to be foolproof, but everyone has to find that. And by the way, for some people, that inspiration will be to, to, to focus on the beautiful sunrise in the morning and, and then thank God for that. For others, it'll be to recognize God involved in their daily life. Uh, for others, it'll be just recognizing the gifts that they have in terms of being healthy and a functional body and, 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 and the, the honor to connect to God. Uh, every single person, it'll be in their own way, but you need to have continuous inspiration and study is a big part of that. Uh, that's why we have commands for daily study, for daily prayer. Those are all tools. On the one hand, they're commandments, but they're tools to enable us to have daily inspiration. We actually, Pastor, we have a custom, and some view it as law, to say a hundred blessings every single day. A hundred blessings every day where we start by saying, Baruch Ata Hashem, you God are the source of all blessings. A person who a hundred times a day says, you are the source of all blessing, God, that person is in much better shape to stay true to that inspiration uh, than someone who goes about their day without even recognizing a God in their lives. So that's the way we try to maintain it. And I'm so curious to hear uh, from your faith perspective what a person needs to do to keep to that inspiration and commitment. I like exactly what you said, the consistent devotion to the Lord. And we, as Christians, use terminology like a daily walk with God instead of a weekly or occasional walk with God. In fact, one of the teaching series of my sermons from the years past at our church, the title of the teaching series was All Seven, that we as followers of Jesus are called to connect with Jesus and follow after Jesus all seven days of the week. Not Sunday only or occasionally on Sundays or holidays, but all seven days of the week. And we make parallels like if you want to grow as a husband and wife, you have to communicate together often and continuously. And every day you share and you learn and you communicate and you spend time together. And it's the same principle that we need to spend time with our Lord every day, as you mentioned, in prayer, in study of the Word. A daily walk is the phrase that we use, and I think that's really the answer when we see the danger of falling away. It's because that covenant is broken down, that relationship is broken down, and I don't like a lot of church cliches, but here's one for you, Rabbi, that might be new to you. When people say, I don't feel as close to the Lord anymore, we often have the cliche response of, well, which one of you moved? Yep. It's not the Lord who moved away from me. It's I moved away from the Lord. Very much so. And that's uh, something which we always have to uh, remember. And that's what's established right here. Before the Torah, before the Bible is even given on Sinai, sort of the terms are established and, and the people's commitment is, is there and in place. Let's look at that verse 9 of Exodus 19 before we get to chapter 20. You mentioned it already. The Lord said, verse 9 of Exodus 19, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. So as you mentioned, the Lord said, I'm not going to have an intermediary, Moses. I want to have a personal relationship with each member of my spiritual family. And for those of us who follow after Jesus and we want a personal relationship with God, we believe that's why Jesus came to earth, was to be that personal connection we can have to God. The idea that the Lord does not want to be distant from his creation, but personal with his creation. It's a powerful, it's a welcoming image. And this is the principle you're describing in verse 9. 
Absolutely. And this is literally the basis of our faith. What I mean by that is we are not a people who have a Bible where there was some guy who was walking on a mountain and comes to us and says, oh, God came to me. The story that we tell is that God came to us. God says, I will come to you. The people will hear. And here are the most important words in that verse, chapter 19, verse 9. And then in you, Moses, they will trust forever. Our faith in the Bible that Moses brought to us is not based on Moses coming and saying, hey, everyone, look what God gave to me. Because he can make it up. There have been good people who felt prey to all kinds of temptations and and, and even though he was a great man, maybe he decided to make something up and who knows what. No, it's God that comes to the people and says, Moses is my prophet. Everything he tells you is telling you in my name. And now you have the basis. Now you have the basis for trusting in Moses forever and accepting this as the word of God. And that's why on a certain level, it's one of the most important phrases and verses in the entire Bible, because it's the basis for our accepting it as the word of God. When we talk about the Torah, the Word of God, many people automatically jump to the Ten Commandments. It's like the summary statement of all of the Word of God, which is, of course, bigger than the Ten Commandments, but that's the summary or the snapshot that people think of, and that comes in our next chapter, Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are listed often in graphics about a single chart, and it looks like it's a chiseled piece of stone, but it's a full chapter, and there's longer explanations than these short abbreviated phrases that we often see. And so, Rabbi, I want you to comment on, first of all, before we get into the specific commandments, what is the power? Why is the Ten Commandments such a great summary statement of our walk with the Lord? Basically, they established the concept of two aspects. One is uh, the relationship that we have with God, and that's the first part of the commandments and establishing the notion of a monotheistic God. Uh, and that was obviously revolutionary in the world. But then it was also the relationship of man and man, and the idea of establishing a, a civilized society. And that also was revolutionary uh, in the world. So you're talking about 10 commandments, which encapsulate the idea of we on a daily basis are responsible to maintain our proper relationship with God and we're, uh, our proper relationship with our fellow man. And those are the two premises uh, of which all of of faith and and religion revolves, our relationship to God first and foremost. But of course, every person has been created by God and is in God's image, and therefore our responsibility to them. It's very difficult for us in today's world uh, to imagine a world without these concepts, because certainly you have a state of Israel, which is based on the premise of a God. You have the United States of America, where I was watching the president's State of the Union, and right behind him are the words in God we trust, it's taken for granted that exists. Certainly civilized society, we're both blessed to live in countries where there are rules and and it's taken for granted that of course uh, you can't violate these rules between man and man. But there was a time when it wasn't. And this is why the world was changed through this revelation and through these commandments. And that's why they have uh, such primacy. Now, if, I don't, if I'm not mistaken, they are referenced uh, in Christian uh, teachings as well, in terms of the 10 teachings and, and the like. Am I correct about that? 
Of course, yes. As our Christian listeners know, we believe in the New Testament as a continuation or a joint teaching with the Old Testament. And in fact, Jesus himself said that when he came to earth, and we believe he is God, that he said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. That's Matthew 5, verse 17. As Christians, and this is one of the reasons that you and I are friends, Rabbi, we believe that our Christian faith has Hebrew roots and a Hebrew heritage. And so, of course, the Ten Commandments are foundational to the Christian doctrine because the principles of obedience, the principles of caring for others, is vitally important to everyone who walks with God. So, yes, they are central to the Christian faith. And I'd like to talk about them for a moment. We're looking at Exodus chapter 20. Verse 3 is commandment 1, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4 is commandment 2, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Verse 7 is commandment 3, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And verse 8 is commandment 4, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And I'm going to get the rabbi to comment on these in a moment, but I want to remind our Christian audience, what I often teach in our church, is we call those first four commandments the vertical relationships, the person-to-God type relationship, because they have to do with our worship of the Lord and our walking with the Lord. Then you have the last six commandments, numbers 5 through 10, which we call the horizontal commandments, because they have to do person-to-person. So you get to verse 12, commandment 5, honor your father and mother. Verse 13 is commandment 6, you shall not murder. Verse 14, commandment 7, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, commandment 8, you shall not steal. Verse 16 is commandment 9, you shall not bear false witness or be a liar. And then verse 17 is commandment 10, you shall not covet. And then there's the long list of things you should not covet. So first, Rabbi, before you talk about each commandment, I'd like you to talk about that distinction I just made. The first four having to do with this vertical relationship with God. The last six having to do with a horizontal relationship person to person. So first of all, the basis of all is the first one, belief in God. And amazing that God even speaks in, the, in Anochi, which is I. And we actually have a tradition that the first two commandments were taught by God himself to the people. And then afterwards, Moses did the last eight. And God says, believe in me. And he doesn't say, by the way, that I created the world. He said, believe in me. I took you out of Egypt. That was very deliberate to focus on what I'm doing for you, my involvement in your life. It's not just a creator who set the world in motion and then moves away, but is involved. We call divine providence, hashkacha uh, pratit. But along with that, there must be the command, there are no other gods. In the pagan society, certainly uh, that was critical and had to be uh, very clearly established. And along with that is not having any images of God, representations of God, just to understand that he's a God who's beyond our comprehension, this omniscient power which exists beyond time and beyond place, and that's established very clearly in these eight commandments, but not using God's name in vain. It's a continuation of understanding the holiness of God and the reverence that we have to have for God. And that's the first three that are together. But then there's number four which is so critical, which is the concept of Sabbath. 
the idea of taking out one day of the week where we focus on spirituality, where we take a break from what's happening all around us in the world, where we don't do our work. And it specifically says for six days, go and, 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 and do your work, focus on it, and you've got to raise a, your, your families and, and make a living. But then chapter 20, verse 10, but the seventh day, that is devoted to God. That concept of taking one day, God is telling you that's the only way you'll have the relationship with him is if you have that time to focus on him and to focus on spirituality. So those are uh, the first four. We actually view number five, which begins in verse 12, which is honoring your parents as a little bit of a continuation of that honoring of God, because we view parents as being partners with God in the creation of children. Every human being has that relationship, both with parents and with God. And the hope is that through a person giving honor and respect to their parents, which should be such a natural uh, relationship and respect that's given, a person will also recognize that ultimately it's God. So it really brings a person back to God as well. And then we shift gears very quickly to the laws of basic uh, decency between uh, human beings. But there's a relationship between them because when we, when we talk about not killing and not stealing and, and not having jealousy, it all revolves around the notion that there's a God who runs the world. There's a God who has given every person what they're supposed to have. If God wants a person to be alive, that person's supposed to be alive. If God wants a person to have certain material items, they're supposed to have those material items. You're supposed to be satisfied with what you have. And, and, and that's where all the basis for all this. And even not, you know, uh, not bearing false witness, the idea of truth. You mentioned before uh, God is truth. Uh, we finish the Shema prayer every day, one of the most important prayers, by saying Hashem Elokeichem Emet, that God is a God of truth. It's, it's such a critical point. And these Ten Commandments and this revelation at Sinai is what really teaches us of that truth. You asked a moment ago if the Ten Commandments were important to Christians and, and reflected in the New Testament, and I want to give you one example of that. Matthew chapter 22, one of the lawyers came to Jesus and said in verse 36, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And the way we teach this is the first four, the person to God relationship, he said that's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That's how we would summarize those numbers five through ten, that horizontal person-to-person relationship. So Jesus taught the teachings of the Ten Commandments, even in the writings of the New Testament. So yes, the foundation of our faith is our heritage of the Hebrew faith. Jesus was a Jew who came to earth, we believe, as man and as God. And so yes, this Ten Commandments has become the foundation of your faith as a Jew, my faith as a Christian, and we need to say thank you, God. It became the foundation of our two countries the legal system. Now, we all have temptations in our political world. We veer away from this, especially in America. We're sadly veering away from it at a rapid rate. But these principles of morality were the basis of our two societies when they were created. Absolutely. And it's something which we have to always, always remember. And that's literally what we're going to be reading about uh, this week's Torah portion. Uh, 
we're going to stand up in synagogue and, and hear them read and uh, visualize in our minds uh, when these Ten Commandments were given at Sinai. And I certainly recommend that everyone who's listening spend the time to study them in chapter 20 in Exodus and, and remind ourselves of the, of the significance of the revolution which this brought to the world and serves as the cornerstone and the foundation for our, both of our faiths. Rabbi, I always enjoy our time studying the Word together. Blessings to you and your family, and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Blessings to you, and Shabbat Shalom to all. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to Himself this week.